Is everybody in? Is everybody in? The show is about to begin. Welcome to the podcast, conscience that made us. Interviews and stories, tales from the bus. We love taking you back to when it all went down. The greatest live shows and that cheering crowd sound. It's concerts, concerts that made us, concerts that made us.com. Hi, this is Gareth Hayes. Hey, and this is Mark Hayes, and you're listening to The Concerts That that Made made us. Us. As the last train of the night departs its station And the city lays its weary head to rest In the silence I am filled up with elation As in the quiet of the night I'm next to you as the daylight tears a hole into the silence And the world bursts into motion all around We may get swept away by different passing currents But I'll always find you when the chaos settles down I know that I may wander off from time to time Sometimes I get lost, you know it's true But I'll always find my way back To the place my heart belongs Oh my darling, I'll always come back home to you When the grey skies of the city pull me under And I don't know if I'll ever make it through Your outstretched hands reach for me, your arms surround me You carry me all the way back home to you I know that I may wander off from time to time Sometimes I get lost, you know it's true But I'll always find my way back To the place my heart belongs Oh my darling, I'll always come back home to you I know that I may wander off from time to time Sometimes I get lost, you know it's true But I'll always find my way back To the place my heart belongs Oh my darling, I'll always come back home to you Oh my darling, I'll always come back home to you 
Oh my darling, I'll always come back home. Garrison, Mark, you're very welcome to the show. Thanks, man. Good to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. It's brilliant to have you guys now. I'm excited to chat to you. So you released your track Home on the 14th of July. I can't put my finger on it now. There's something familiar but new about it. What can you tell us about it? I think that just in terms of the the idea behind the sort of the feel for the song that I was going for um, was to kind of make something that was familiar but different. Um, I've been writing a, a few songs before I actually got into the idea for Home. And because I think I sort of started off writing really, really simple songs, like sort of when I was a kid, um, before I even joined a band with Mark, you know, I kind of went the opposite direction with some of the stuff I started writing as a solo artist. Um, so I was looking for like, you know, let's look for non-standard chords. Let's look for interesting little hooks and things like that, uh, which I really enjoyed. And I think it, it helped me progress as a songwriter. But then at the same time, I kind of thought, you know what? Sometimes the the most enjoyable songs are the ones that are only three chords in the truth. And, you know, so with Home, that's kind of what I started going for. Um, you know, I had a pretty simple chord structure and a, a, you know, a nice melody that came about from there. Um, and it kind of happens to me with a lot of stuff I end up writing is that, you know, I work on the music for, for quite some time. Um, sometimes up to you know months at a time, and then all of a sudden, you know, I've got the melody and the chords down, and then I think I need some lyrics for this, and you know, it kind of comes about on a train trip or you know walking down to to get some things at the at the grocery store or things like that. Um, and and home was quite similar that the lyrics all kind of came to me very very quickly, and I think I I think I wrote it on on a train trip between where I stay in West London and Central London, so that, that's sort of how that came about yeah right and lyrically where did the inspiration for it come from is it autobiographical or do you approach it from a character standpoint um i i think i well th this song particularly and it has a lot of um personal experience uh involved in the lyrics um i i do like to make all my lyrics at least somewhat personal um you know for so, so i guess people who know me might understand some of the stories behind what I'm writing about but then at the same time I think for people who don't necessarily know me I I always enjoy music where I feel I can relate to the lyrics in some way even if it's you know completely out there and it's maybe a fictional story I think that it's important to have lyrics that, that could be multifaceted and so people can get a different meaning out of it based on their own experiences as well and that you know so yeah I think I think that's, that's there with home as well yeah, we've we've written songs together since we were since we were kids. For for those who are listening for the first time, we're we are siblings. I'm I'm his older brother. Um and we we were in a band together for about fifteen years in South Africa, um, where we wrote songs together uh, a lot of the time. And then um I took part in a reality TV show uh called Idol, uh, which I, I think you guys have over there as well. Um, and I, I got a recording contract through it and then we transformed the band into my solo project. Um, and then the band stayed my band, but we, we changed the name. So everything stayed familiar. Gaz being my, my brother and, and very much a songwriting partner, we, we've written stuff together for so long and he's always really played, um, like backing to me, shall we say, cause I, I'm the front man of, of my project. So, um, a lot of people don't know 
how much influence he actually has over what I've what I've written, what what we've put together. And the songwriting process, you know, there's a real link there because we've grown up together watching documentaries, going to concerts, uh, finding CDs, albums that we like, hearing about an influence, passing it on to others, word of mouth. Uh, and then even now, while he lives in the UK and I live in South Africa, we're, we're passing on names of new acts that we hear about. Have you seen this? Have you seen that? Someone's coming on tour. Go and check them out in your neighborhood when you get there. You know, that sort of thing. So um, a lot of what we write is, yeah, of course, it's going to be based on on what's actually happening around us. But everything we've always written has always had some, not because not we try, but it just seems to, ha- we don't really go out there and say, hey, man, this song is about walking your dog and stepping in dog turd. And and that's what, you know what I mean? It's it's You just, you kind of lay out the, the the situation in front of you and people will hear what they want to hear or they'll hear what they feel. And I think that's what true art is all about. And, and like, I understand he wrote it, you know, you, you, if you listen to it plainly and you know, knowing him, he's written it about going off and playing shows and being away and working hard. And then don't worry, I'll always come back no matter what crazy situation goes on. But we've obviously tested the song amongst friends and, uh, and the record label and that sort of thing. And they all pick up different things with it. They, they pick it up as more like a philosophical sort of song. People have come back and said, it's more just about finding that place in your heart where you feel, you know, at home. And some people have said like, yeah, it's just great. Cause I feel like wherever I am, as long as that person's with me, I'm home and, and things like that. And, and uh, that's not wrong. We don't go, yeah, that's not what it's about. It's about this. So then that's great. That's why it's, I think that's predominantly why we became songwriters. We, uh, we were huge Beatles fans and huge Queen fans. And then Oasis came along somewhere in the nineties when we were really young and influenced. And, um, and that's, that's a lot of like where we're, where we're headed. And U2 was a massive influence on that. Hence the phrase three chords and the truth. I mean, when we heard Bono say that on the rattle and hum, um, documentary, we were like, Holy crap. That, <laughs> that is just genius. You know, it's just what it is. Three chords and the truth. It's all you need. You don't have to get, you can get complicated and believe me, we do, but that's, that's the simplicity of it. So it sounds new because no one's heard him sing. You know, he, he sang backing for me for years and, um, and now he's in the front um, doing it all. So it sounds completely new, different. He's, he's always had a, a unique style of singing that no one's ever really placed their finger on. And I've never heard anyone sing like that or sound like that before. Um, and I think the, the old that you're hearing, the familiarity of it is, is the influence. I think that's it. It's just there are so many, so many shite songs out there now Fuck for the last like 20, 20 <laughs> to 30 years. Look, there's always been shite music. But there, there's a lot more of it now than ever before. And I think when something good cuts through, immediately people go, wow, it feels like I've heard it before. I mean, we, what were we watching the other day? Are we watching McCartney, uh, 321? Uh, yeah. um, uh, well, I was watching it here and you were watching it there. But we, we were talking about it as we, as we always have. And uh, Rick Rubin says to McCartney, McCartney plays something on the show, something new. He just gives it a go. And then Rick Rubin says, it's new. I've never heard it before, but it feels like I've always heard it. I've always known it. And when I heard that, I, I, I phoned Gaz and I said to him, like, isn't that just the goal? You just want to know that when you bring something out, the world goes, yeah, it's always been there. It's been somewhere tucked in between the forest of music. And, and here it is. We picked the flower and it's sitting in front of us now. So, yeah. You know, that's kind of what you've achieved with this song. As I said, it's familiar, but new. But, um, you know, you mentioned that you guys have worked together for 15 years in the band. You also co-produced this track together. Now, I'm sure there's listeners dying to know, what's it like working so close with a sibling? I imagine it can go one of two ways. It's either a nightmare or it's magic. Um, 
You go first, man. I, I, let's let the young one start first with this one. I'll, <laughs> sure, I'll sure. Add my <laughs> you know what? It's I think it's easier now that we're a little older. Um, and I think also it's it's a weird thing, you know, it, but I think the distance with Mark being in South Africa and me being in, in the UK, it, it it's actually beneficial in some sense because it it forces you to actually step back from things and you know take a day to 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 sort of mull over it in your mind um so you know before when we were in a band we you know when we were obviously growing up living together in the same house so it was uh you know we were constantly talking about things constantly working on things together you know we never really ever lived further than about 20 minutes to half an hour away from one another um up until a few years a few years ago um so there was always that really sort of close contact and, and, you know, constant working together, which, which I think is really great because you can achieve a lot in a short time, having access to that time together, but yeah. at the same it time, friction, it, though. yeah, it can cause some friction. Yeah. And I think that, you know, working together now, having that distance between us and, you know, having, you know, quite different lives and, and that sort of thing as well, you know, it it forces you to sort of, you know, get your idea out there, talk about it a bit, and then walk away for a while, which I think is incredibly yeah. healthy for the creative process. Um, because when, you, when you're when you constantly just, you know, shoving yourself into this idea, you, you can you can kind of block yourself a little bit. Um, mm. But when you give yourself some mm. time and space, then, you know, you can actually create something really awesome. Yeah, living in a house together was, if I, if I think of songwriting, I mean, someone would write something, show it to the other brother, and then you'd still hear the other one tracking it in the room or trying it out or then there'd be a rehearsal with the with the band and it would kind of be all around you all the time but the the way our creative process back then was was more of like a uh, I wouldn't say a fight but it the, people when we were a band most definitely and it was a it was a four-way split everyone would fight for their piece of cake everyone would fight to get their point across and get their name on the song and uh, and be known as the one who wrote that line or the one who wrote that hook or the one who wrote that that whatever and um probably why that band didn't work out you know um because bands very rarely do work out you know just think it's what's the stats i read the other day two percent of 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 what's out there is actually what you see on the television and or, or hear on the radio so like um which is freaking scary but um but yeah we, we are a statistic we, we've been through that mode but i do like now you know just from a brother point of view as well like family point of view we talk more about family things and um you know, brotherly things now than we ever did when we lived and worked together and toured together. So that that gives a bit of perspective as well. And I have a lot more understanding of him as as him. You know, so when he comes to me with a song, um, I don't have to say to him, "What are you trying to say?" I, I immediately know what he's saying, and I immediately understand what he's what he's going for. Um, and and yeah, I think that's just the case of it. And you know, he's been away. We've lived away from each other for six years. So it's a it's a long time in the music world, you know. But we've stayed in touch the entire time, so we know what's going on. So, and you know, it it took a bit of convincing to get to get you to kind of go out there and be a front man. You you have everything it takes to do it. So it's it's it was a slow process because I mean, fifteen years of being backing to his older brother that's that's a very humble place to be, and no one realizing the, how incredibly talented he actually is, and and what a great songwriter he actually is because. I mean, my name gets slapped onto the front of it, so no one really understands what goes on. But um, we've had that chat a few times, and I'm, I'm really proud that he's gone and gone and done this. So you know, there's a lot of as a producer, you, you you are kind of 
brotherly, fatherly, in, in a sense, over whoever your artist is that comes on board. Um, but with this, I feel an immense amount of pride. And I, I, I think I'm, I was a bit of a bully as well. I was just like, I'm, I'm producing this. I don't give a fuck who else you got. Like, <laughs> kick him to the side. It's mine. You know, let's, let's run this together. And it, it was a bit of a sad moment because, I mean, he's, he's written this. And it's going to be an incredible album. I can't wait for you guys to hear the, the, the rest of the material that's come out. And it's coming out of the blocks with a song like Home. It's just setting everyone up for, for an immensely great surprise. But it was a sad moment. Our, our dad had passed away a couple of months back. So Gaz came back to South Africa with his family um, to visit, help take care of our mom, uh, settle affairs, you know, the funeral, things like that. Um, and in the process of hearing home, I'd heard it about two, three weeks before he came down and had an idea of it. And then hearing it with different ears, you know, with the fact that our father's now passed away and, and he's actually coming home to the homeland. And it, it, it just it kind of puts things together. And I just said to him, I have to be on this. Um, if anything, if I put my name on it, at least we've got to give this some sort of a push. Not like I'm, uh, you know, just because my name's on it, it's going to go somewhere. I, a, I want to be the producer, but B, if I sing on it with you, we can release it together. And, and you know, people will see, like, you, you're actually doing this now. And then from there on out, it's yours. You take it and you go, and it's all got to do with you. It's nothing to do with me anymore. It's almost like a, I don't know, a symbolic handing over of the baton sort of thing, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I get you, I get you. And you touched on so many things there that I try. I had them laid out in front of me and I'm trying to think of what I want to jump to next. But uh, <laughs> is is the track a good indication then of what we can expect with the upcoming album? Or is there a couple of surprises thrown into the album as well? Um, I think I think both yes and no. So I think in terms of, you know, the the general style of the song that's sort of somewhat acoustic driven uh kind of folky but i could say it's folk rock in a sense um you know i feel that's kind of the general style that everything else is sort of in considering I, you know I've, everything i've written i've written on acoustic guitar just in my room basically um because i primarily perform as a solo artist um but that doesn't mean that you're not going to hear drums and bass and some electric guitar and piano and synths and strings and i'm whatever the I'm, song needs really yeah it's yeah. basically what the song needs I, I i i wouldn't really want to sort of pigeonhole myself in in, you know, in terms of saying like i'm only ever going to be sitting with a yeah. with an acoustic guitar and singing um i think it's really what it's what the songs need um so yeah well, uh, when we were when we were yes kids, and no. we, we we idolized like look there's not i can tell you now it ain't gonna be no techno music or something like that on there it's not, <laughs> no you're not gonna get a surprise as in like oh look an edm track in the middle of the acoustic <laughs> stuff you know so in terms of surprises i think yeah short answer yeah you're gonna get you'll be surprised because lyrically it's just it, it's very very strong um and it holds a lot of lot of ground with what's going on um in the world as well as like in your personal life and in his personal life i feel like it's a very personal um collection of songs right guys i mean not just yeah. for me but like just hearing hearing in and as, as far as family goes like not every brother talks to each other about everything that's going on but like when you open a book like an album cover and you and you get to see what's actually going on in this dude's head i i, I get to go okay cool this is pretty interesting i i see what you're saying i feel the same way about that or i understand what you're saying about that so as a producer i i understand like where he's running with this and you know it, it helps to to have all this history behind us because our favorite artists, you know, if we're going to go down the road, Queen and the Beatles and Oasis and Zeppelin 
and whatever. Like it, all these, all these bands that we idolize, or these musicians that we idolize, they they didn't hold back in studio. In studio, they did what it took to make the song what the song should be, and that be that. And then when you get to the to the stage afterwards, if you have to dumb it down to an acoustic level, or if you're going to partner up with another artist or do a duo, you know, so be it. That's what it's going to be because it is. It's always a form of art. So the album, the album's like painting on canvas, but going to play live is like spray painting on the floor. And you know what I mean? Going into track it live in a studio recording in a podcast is is kind of like doing, you know, graffiti in someone's backyard. Like, you know, it's 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 all different art. It's just uh, it's the same song with a different canvas. That's all it really is. So we'll we'll make it what it's meant to be, and then where it goes from there is, you know, it's up to I don't know, up to God. <laughs> See where it goes. You know, Mark said earlier that you were his drummer for years. For you, Garrett, how was the transition to the solo performer? And was it something that was always on the cards for you? Uh, no, no, it was absolutely terrifying, actually. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it's a weird thing. So I, I think I, I've never really ever been shy to perform. Um, I'm I'm probably not as, I mean, as far as like the two, the two brothers go, I'm, I'm definitely the more introverted one. Mark is by far the more extroverted person. Um, so, you know, he's a bit more naturally charismatic than what I am, but keep I going, still, keep I, keep thank you. Keep I know, saying you, nice I know thank you like it. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, yeah. But uh, you know, I, I do enjoy performing and I think, you know, a lot of the, the artists that I admire are, are ones that where, you know, the, the, the performance is the thing that really matters. You know, the, they make it worth every penny that you're spending on a concert ticket. Um, and so, you know, as a member of Mark's band, I always tried to do that behind the kit. I always wanted to be entertaining. Um, you know, one of my favorite drummers was, was Taylor Hawkins, um, you know, who was a phenomenally entertaining person on stage and has so much energy. And so, you know, the transition from going, you know, from, from a drummer with a great band around me to being a solo artist, it was, it was pretty daunting. Um, you know, it, it didn't come as naturally to me as what drumming came. So I felt, I, you know, it was for the first time in probably 20 years that I, I'd felt nervous on stage. You know, it's like so much so that like my leg was wobbling a little bit, which is a strange feeling. Um, but, you know, I, I spoke to Mark, I mean, the, the, you know, the day after I went and I attended an open mic night um, and I spoke to Mark the next day and I said, it, it was amazing how all those nerves within the first 30 seconds of the first song I played, just they just went away. And it just felt normal again. It just felt like I'm up on stage. I'm enjoying myself. I'm giving the best possible performance I can give. And it was fun. And so it's, you know, doing it now for about a, a year and a half every week or so, you know, it's, it's moved on to that now. It's not, it's not, it's not just fun, um, which, I, which I, I'm really enjoying a lot. I think we forget, like, because a lot of people ask, like, don't you get nervous before you go on stage? And the answer is, of course you do. But it's what, what, what do you, where do you transfer it to? Like some, I don't think I, I don't see it. We, we definitely didn't see it as nervousness before we walked on stage. It's, it's anticipation. It's adrenaline. Yeah, it's excitement. It's, it's all that, yeah. that nerve. Yeah. That nervous energy, but you go and do something completely different, like stand with a guitar instead of sitting behind the drum kit where you're used to being for the last how many years, then you, you start to wonder if maybe this is a bit of jitters, a bit of nervous, but like you say, 30 seconds in and you, you realize, nah, it's the same nerves I've always felt. I'm just eager to please and do the job correctly and make sure people enjoy what they're hearing. Yeah, so yeah. I, I, uh, I knew you could do it, man. He'd be fine. Thanks. 
<laughs> That's uh, some great brotherly support you have. You know, you guys are obviously on different continents now, but you're still working on the album. I suppose nowadays it's not really a limitation, but how are you guys approaching it? Um, I'll take this one. I basically, look, when, when he was down here, it, it lit a fire under our asses and we just said, yeah, let's do this now. Enough of this like bantering around and doing what we have to do. Get your ass into the studio and we're going to track everything. And we tracked everything in a day. We did all his guide tracks, all his vocals and his acoustic guitar in, in the space of not even a day, but a few hours. We had it nailed in and uh, laid in and done. Then we finished off what we needed to do with home within the, about another day and a half or two days, something like that. Um, and And now we're, we're floating around. We've obviously got different projects yet to go back to the UK. I am in the middle of an album for myself as well as producing other, other acts and, and the, the schedule then runs on. So yeah, without having him knocking on my door every day going, Hey man, uh, what's the progress? You know, the pressure is definitely a bit less, but I imagine that it's closer to crunch time and, and the schedule clears out. Then, then it's going to go back to fast forward again. And we're going to be running forward and backwards and forwards, but no, it doesn't feel too, different to to working with anyone else um i mean i know it's him uh, but but i but it's the same thing phone calls whatsapps happen and you know zoom calls and and microsoft meetings and, and it all goes backwards and forwards until you know someone signs off on what needs to be done the only difference is when he eventually tracks his main vocal um and finalizes a few guitar parts and things like that or does the drumming i don't get to sit in the room while he does it but I know him so well that it doesn't matter to me. Um, he'll he'll send it through. I could always send notes, and he'll he'll trick it from there. So it's a little bit of an adjustment um, to working in the room with uh, with the artist. But again, we've got that I don't know that uh, brotherly connection that and music connection, a musician's connection that we we we've learned to work with each other for so long. We know what he can do, what I can do, and what he can't do, and what I can do. So uh, what I can't do. So yeah, I think it'll be okay. I uh, I am a bit nervous about it, but these sort of nerves look very similar to the ones that you get when you go on stage. You, you just want to make sure you don't um, that he's heard. You know, at the end of the day, I, it doesn't matter that he's my brother. It, he's he's gets he's treated like any other artist that comes through the door. Um, you you got to get your point across, and I want to hear what you have to say because it's your song, not mine. Um, that happens, you know. Yeah, yeah. And at this stage, I'd love to give the listeners a sense of where this great talent comes from for both of you guys. So if you can, what was your earliest musical memory? Whoa. Uh, my my earliest would have been about two to three years before he was born. Um, I was roped into, I was four years old, and I was, I was roped in to sing in front of um, the family church uh suddenly uh, just swiftly on a sunday morning just gr- literally grabbed by the cuff of my uh, of my shirt and said come on you're going to sing and th- about five or other five or six other kids were chosen as well and i was the smallest one out of them i think by seven or eight years the the, the oldest the youngest was like 12 and then it was me at four um and it, it went so well uh, that they asked me to do it like again and again and again i think i sang it about five or six times throughout the uh, it was some sort of church carnival or something to that effect um, but there were a, an immense amount of people watching me, and I, I remember feeling extremely nervous um, doing it. And I didn't sing again in public um, until I was 17 years old. That uh, that was that was the first time I did it, and then I only waited another few because I, I just wanted to be a guitarist. I was Clapton crazy, and all I wanted to be was Eric Clapton. So I I wasn't worried about being a singer. Uh, I think that scared me and helped me at the same time. But yeah, what was your earliest memory? Um... I think so. First, first sort of like ex, 
exposure to music that really had a big impact on me. I think I was probably about three or four um, and a, a local TV station in South Africa broadcast. It was the, it was the 1986 uh, Wembley stadium show that that queen did. Uh, it was, it was oh, on right. the, it was on the, it's the kind of magic tour. Um, this is obviously, you know, five, six years later after the actual concert took place. Um, yeah, South Africa always gets things uh, a yeah, little bit later than anyone. It was, it was a, bit, a bit later, <laughs> a bit like Ireland but, as well. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I remember seeing seeing that show on on the TV and thinking like, wow, this is this is incredible. Like it just just everything about it, you know, the the band on stage, the music, the atmosphere of being there with you know thousands of other people. It was I that actually, was just I, so cool. I for remember. Me. Because I, I mean, I remember you 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 doing that. You you grabbed you grabbed a yeah this little toy briefcase thing which had the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles on it, <laughs> which was your which was your your bass drum I think it was, and then you grabbed a bucket which was your snare drum and like an old plate and things like that. And he and he made a drum set out of crap really, and and that's what he played on. He had like two sticks or two crayons or something like that, and you used that to to as a drum yeah. set. Yeah. And then every time I played guitar. You would you would come and jam along with me. We would have would have like a little jam session in the lounge, and it was it was actually musically quite all right. Like he understood the difference between the the, the nuances between the, the different sounds. You know, he knew what a bass drum should sound like in a snare drum. Um, and, I, and not long after that, I think he may have been five or six. But we, myself, my grandfather, and him, we went down to the music store to go and get strings for my guitar, and um, we were chatting with the the store owner. And um, next thing you know, I turn around and I'm like, "Where's?" Gaz and my grandfather's freaking out because he's like, shit, we've lost the kid. Like, you know. <laughs> and and we just everyone just kind of pauses for a second, yeah. And we can hear drums playing. And I look at the store and something clicks and I go, Do you have someone playing drums in the back? And he goes, No, it's just me here today. So we go, well, what the hell's that then? So we walk round down the ramp to the end of the store, which is quite far. It's round, it's round a corner. And there is this little kid. He settled himself onto a drum set, never touched a drum set in his life before. But he's sitting on the drum kit and he's 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 figured out how to play it, but not like bad, like properly. He's actually holding a proper four, four beat, four to the floor, no problem. And we came home, my grandfather and I burst into laughter. It was incredible. We came home and I ran to my mom and dad and I said, I, I don't we weren't the most well off family. I just said, like, whatever savings you have, you gotta get this kid a drum set. There's just no I mean, like you won't believe what he just did. And about a month later, my folks got the money together. We brought the drum set home. I helped him tune it up. And and the, my mom and dad were looking, waiting to see what he would do. And sure as, you know, true as God, there he was. And he sat down and he said, okay, this is how it goes. And we were like, what the hell? So it wasn't a flip. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was 11 years old. I remember it. Cause I got, I got my, yeah, I was 11 because I got my first drum kit for Christmas uh, when I was 11 years old. I remember. Wow. Oh. Yeah. yeah, but you I were, remember you that, were much that smaller when you played actually them. being in. Yeah, no, maybe maybe I'd had a growth spurt or something, but it was it was definitely that year. <laughs> <laughs> and you know your local music scene then when you were growing up, what was it like compared to now? You know, was it much different back then? Yeah, um, even yeah. So it, it changed. It changed quite a bit, even in the in the six year difference in our age. So when when I was really little, before he was born. There was there wasn't much going. There, there were a lot of great musicians in our country. We still have a lot of great musicians in our country, but there was a, a real explosion of amazing talent that the world will never get to see because we were stuck in um, in sanctions and boycotts because of apartheid. 
going on in our country. So there, there is footage lying around at the SABC, uh, you know, of, of all these acts and, and things like that. And I've met so many musicians. And when you meet them, they're just regular people. And someone will come and whisper in your ear, do you know who that was? And I'll go, no, I have no idea. And they go, that was so-and-so. They performed um, at the stadium. They were with Mega Groove or whatever. And you're going like, wow, they're just walking around like it's no one's business because they're not earning the money that a professional musician at their age would have earned had they had been you know, had, had they had had international exposure at that time. And as it so happens, because we, our country was, uh, wasn't exposed to a lot of international music. We were very closed off. We, and our government at the time would, would not allow us to hear certain songs, uh, because they were of political agenda or so they felt it was, it was very, uh, very zeitgeist, you know? And, um, and I mean, I wasn't aware of any of this because I was still a, y- a young child, but um, I, I obviously learned this later on. But the cover scene became a massive thing in our country. And if you could replicate a song, so someone would buy an LP and it would have like, I don't know, Bohemian Rhapsody on it. And then like two or three days, someone would buy this LP, share it with their whole band. They would sit, they'd study it, they'd write down the lyrics, they'd work it out. And then they would try to be the ones to play it live. And then about four or five other bands throughout the city would, would try and play it as well. And then people would hop to the streets and see who was doing the best version of it. And they would literally say, yeah, the Ballyhoo does the best version of that. And so, you know, then the other bands would stop playing that song and it would like become kind of like their song. And so the cover scene was massive, massive. And then somewhere near Gaz's uh, arrival on the planet uh, throughout the, throughout the nineties, um, there was a, we, we were brought back into the world, 1994 uh, democratic election and, and Nelson Mandela stepped in and we were then exposed to the rest of the world and we suddenly had a chance and original music at that, at that point exploded. And we had some massive like acts locally start to do some big things around here because nobody, but nobody wanted to hear uh, cover songs anymore. Everyone was crazy about originals. And to be honest, most of it was crap. But um, but we were so keen to hear new things and see new things and get guitars that we couldn't get before and amps and drums that we couldn't get before. And and, and I, I remember that from being a kid. Gaz wouldn't remember too much of that. He'll remember the crap bands, but he'll, he'll yeah. you know. Yeah. And then as as we moved into teenage years and, and as we left school, we formed our bands. And at that point, it, it's, uh, it was almost as if the industry was, I wouldn't say stabilizing, but it was definitely on and up. And people were writing better songs and the bands were getting tighter because we were able to travel and, and work overseas and be overseas and, and that sort of thing. And that's, uh, and that's where we're at right now. So it's, um, yeah, we're, we're very young uh, in the music biz from a, a media standpoint, but, but we're, we, we've got some great talent here that have been around you forever that will never get the recognition they deserve. Yeah. Would I be right in saying that some of that from, you know, the early days has kind of, came along to now as well because I've spoke to quite a few South African musicians as well from new bands right up to the guys that were there in the 90s that were massive and something I've noticed compared to any other country in the world is no matter how big or famous a musician in South Africa is he's incredibly approachable and chill you know whereas over here you can't just walk up to Bono and say hey Bono how's it going but I imagine in South Africa, <laughs> you could be walking down the street and like the biggest rock star there is there and you could just have a conversation with them. Yeah. South Africa is very, very uh, holy about that. As in, if you're not cool, get the fuck out. That's kind of how we are. <laughs> so um, because I think it's because we're a sports orientated nation. So 
if you're a sports person, you better be ready to sign autographs and pick up kids and, and hold babies and, and you know, and um, stand there for 15,000 photographs because that's just how sports people are. Well, not in the States, but 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 here and, and where you are and, you know, we're, we're very much like a rugby nation. So and, and I've met a lot of our Springbok rugby players and, and that's kind of the – that's the 411. You have to be available at all times. Smile whenever you're there if you're eating dinner – there's a limit, and the, I think the public kind of do know it. It's not as frantic as the paparazzi t- tend to get in the UK, but um, because the press kind of they'll step off eventually, they'll go, okay, we got our photo, thanks, we'll leave you alone. But the second you start having some sort of pretense, or you know, you don't want to look at people, or you refuse to answer, the the public cut you off. They don't want to know. I mean, I know for a fact that I didn't know this when I was on um, on Idols. But I, I am like that. I, I, I mean, I'll stop to say hello to anyone. I, I've really got no problem doing that. It's, it, it's fine. Um, I understand what I signed up for. So that's, that's what goes on. And I, but, but that actually stood very well in my favor that I was extremely approachable and, and very nice. I don't look approachable and very nice. I get told that a lot. I get told, <laughs> right. like, wow, we didn't, we didn't think you'd be cool, but you are. And I'm like, well, uh, thank you, I think, you know, uh, whatever. So it's a huge deal here. If you're if you're not cool, then no one wants to wants to be around you, and no one wants to chat with you. In fact, we've got a bunch of terrible musicians that are so cool that it doesn't matter that their music's terrible. They're just so nice and really great celebrity type people that that they get by that way. And I'm not going to mention names, but um, but you know, it, I, I suppose every country has that. But like, it's it's a likability factor out here sometimes, not all the time, but but a lot of the time. Um, and yeah, you you just got to. I don't know. I think it's just an approach. I think it's part of our, uh, what would you say, Gaz? I think it's part of our culture, part of our nature. Like if we, we, we don't believe in higher than or lower than it's like everyone's together in this. That's, I think that's from 1994 has been the, the idea. That's what we are supposed to be. We're together. Yeah, I think so. Um, I, I also think though, I mean, I think that's probably just a bit from, from living here as well, where there's you know, a little bit of cultural difference, I guess. But something I have kind of noticed about South Africa is that there's a there's a definite sort of difference in like fandom when it comes to something that is homegrown versus something that's come from from a different country. Um, you know, like there's a lot of I mean, it goes down to even things like like fast food. You know, like the way, I remember when when you know, Starbucks coffee came to South Africa and people were lining up around the block for a Starbucks coffee. And I'm like, Starbucks coffee, that stuff tastes like crap. You know, it's just, <laughs> yeah. it, it's, you know, it's like, there's, there's much better places to get coffee than Starbucks, but you know, people were like, it's, but it's Starbucks. It's a big brand. It's a big thing. That's not from here. Um, and I, I think that there's that, that sort of difference. You know, I think people think, you know, because an artist is, you know, from, from their, they're from their neighborhood, from their city or whatever, you know, it's, they almost feel, uh, you know, that that they that, that that the person is more approachable. Um, yeah. Whereas I think, you know, at least from what I've experienced here in the UK, you know, people people appreciate you know people who are successful and and famous and that sort of thing. But I feel that there is a bit more approachability here. You know, people don't really care like where you're from or how successful you are. You're still a person first. Um, for the most part, I mean, I'm pretty sure there are some people who will, you know, grab someone and tear their clothes off in the street because they're crazy about them. But, um, you know, I, I haven't, I haven't seen that at least. <laughs> well, the, the, the fame bugs a huge issue in the UK. Like you were, you were telling me at, at some of the open mic nights, some, some of like Jesse J's backing band are there jamming. 
Uh, oh, yeah, the yeah. Guy, uh, the, the, was the guy that used to sing for Queen for Smile before that uh, became yeah, the, Queen. The, the first, the first jam night I went to was it was a, it was a jazz fusion jam. Um, I played drums at, um, and like the level of talent was just it was ridiculous. It was just so so good. But I remember chatting to this this one guy, and I I can't remember his name was now, but he was he was a keyboard player, and my friend who was there with me, who's uh, he's actually also originally from South Africa, Mike Horn, he's a fantastic session drummer. Um, he says to me, yeah, that guy that we were just chatting to, he just got off a huge arena tour across Europe with Sam Smith. And I thought, wow. Right? And he's and we're in this little basement club where there's maybe 20 people. And I just thought, oh, wow. And he's playing here at this little jam. That, that's that's so cool, you know? And uh, you know, people don't really make anything of it. And yeah, like Mark was mentioning it, you know, a while back uh, at an open mic, um, a guy came up to do a few songs and you know, just, just with an acoustic guitar, great voice you know really cool songs and a friend of mine who was with me he, he taps me on the shoulder he says do you, do you know who that guy is i said no no he's really good though and he says no his name is his name's tim staffel and he um <laughs> he's, he, he used to sing in a band called smile and as soon as the, my friend said that he played in a band called smile i was like oh my gosh that's the band that the rest of queen were part of tim left smile and then freddie replaced him and they became queen and and yet he's you know super humble, down to earth guy, you know, lives locally, plays locally, just enjoys music. And I think that, that that's kind of has to be because he's, he's not you know? the lead singer of Queen. So yeah, yeah. but I think that you know, he, I, I'm pretty sure he's still he, he's, pro- he's probably still got Brian and Roger and John's numbers on his phone. You know, he probably talks to them the all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was on the do- and he had to sign off on the movie on Beaming Rhapsody. He had to sign off on it to say that they were allowed to use his name and a likeness yeah, of yeah. For, as an actor. But 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 the, what I mean is is that that like the backing band who are the real stars for rihanna for example or sam smith or jesse j or whoever okay these are the real talented people that's not the it's not it's not sam i mean sam's cool i'm sure but i mean i haven't met him i suppose he's cool but but you know he's he's not the the reason it sounds so great he's the reason they get paid but no one gives a shit about them they're just like oh yeah there's timmy in the corner doing his thing and you know sam's off being chauffeured by 15 bodyguards and Probably has his personal masseuse in the room waiting to, you know, give him a rub down after the gig. But but that's that's what I'm saying. I mean, we opened for Bon Jovi. Shit, was it 2013 here in, yeah. in Cape Town? And I mean, we met we met the the road manager and we met Tico's drum tech, and then we met I don't know if you were with me, but Bjorn and I we met um, uh, Full X, and Full X is is he's like my hero. Full X is now in Bon Jovi. He replaced Richie Sambora, but he he always stepped in when Richie was having like drug issues and. Uh, rehab issues and things like that so in 2013 he still wasn't an official member of Bon Jovi he was playing through Richie Sambora's rig so when we're on stage doing our setup and getting ready for soundcheck we're, we're looking at the the tape marks on the ground it's it's all marked off like on, who, on whoever's gig in rig it is and all the guitars are there and everything's there you, you try to touch it and someone slaps you on the wrist but um as we're busy clearing out on the onto the stage walks Phil X I mean I knew exactly who he was but I was like Phil wow nice to meet you it was super fine totally cool and he's still seriously chilled because he's come from nothing for I don't know twenty years before he finally landed this massive gig with Bon Jovi. Now he's a millionaire. Now he's doing extremely well, and even now he doesn't care. And that is a huge issue. I've been reading about him a lot because obviously I follow what he does, and that's that's what he says is happening. All these people are now running after him for autographs or whatever, and the security team are furious because he he stops for everyone. 
And they're going like, dude, you can't do that. You've got to keep running. And he's like, why? They want to, they want my autograph, man. Like, I want to get it. You know, so that's, that's how he talks, you know? And he's like, I don't understand. Why are we running? And you're like, Look, these kids want autographs. So, so he, he does it. And, but, and he's right. Like, why, why are we running away? I mean, I understand. If, if it's Paul McCartney and John Lennon and the Beatles, and everyone's about to rip their clothes off and probably try and steal a kidney with their bare hands out of their bodies. Like, that's the, you're talking about the Beatles getting their van tipped over onto the side at the sixties frenzy, uh, the Brit uh, revolution sort of thing, you know? Um, and um, that's different. That's scary. That's dangerous. That's when things get a little bit of a get, get a bit awry. But I mean, I've had many fights with security teams going, we're not like, you remember guys, I dived into the crowd at, um, at the, uh, which was that place called in um, Johannesburg. And they were so fuming with me. They said, you could have caused a real problem. And I said, why? Everyone loves it. And they're just there to have a good time. And your job is to pull me out if something goes wrong. So you do your job and I'll do my job. Take it easy. You know? so, <laughs> it's a good way to look at it. <laughs> yeah, man. We're all there for a reason. I mean, that's what we get paid for. So, yeah, I, I, my job is to entertain the crowd. Your job is to entertain the crowd. Now, that's, that's uh, pass the baton on to you, man. We might as well uh, dive into concerts. So I have to ask you guys, as concert goers then, what concerts have made you? Cool. We didn't get to go to a lot of great international acts when we were younger because of the transition period in our in our country. But you you've seen a lot more than I have now because of how much you've traveled and and what I mean. The first time you went to the UK, you went to go and see. Uh, uh, I, I saw, yeah, my first trip to the UK, I saw I saw the used the used for the first time. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and then I've seen a lot of acts since I moved here. <laughs> <laughs> so many well, the, now. the used the used show that was a that was an um wasn't an arena it was a club right how many yeah, people it was, a, it was a very it was a very big nightclub it's uh it was a place called um the electric ballroom in camden in london yeah yeah, yeah. uh so it's a couple thousand people it's, it's pretty big so like you're talking about big but like if, for everyone else over there the, when you talk about that to us here in, in south africa we're like that's that, i mean that's an arena it, it could have it may as well have been when he was reporting back to the band we were like a thousand and something people in the club we we could, we played clubs that got like a hundred to two hundred people, and if there were two hundred people in there, then the police would be there to, you know, find out where the fire exits are and we're breaking laws. And we, it's it's getting better now, and and it's grown, but that's how far behind we were. The first, um, I mean, I've been to many concerts, but like there were a lot of those like sort of cover shows. Our uncle was in a band, and he he took part in Battle of the Band shows through certain radio stations out here. But the first real live international band I went to go see was live. Um, and they ventured down here. I I, uh, I wasn't allowed to go see U2. I was too young. But the very next year, live came down. So I went to go watch them. Um, and I got to say, it's the 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 thing that got me the most is is like you don't when you watch something on a television, the camera's on everything all the time. So I got lucky with with live. Ed's quite an active guy. He moves around a lot. So it's a front man. He he's engaging. And Freddie was always my my hero from Queen. So watching it live, watching live live for the first time and. Um, there's a lot of activity on the stage. Um, and I, I thought like, okay, this is what it looks like. This is what it sounds like. It was exactly what I hoped it would be. Um, and then fast forward a few years, I, I'd seen, um, and I'm not going to try and badmouth them, but I mean, watching Kings of Leon was very disappointing because really? they're, they're basically, yeah, but they, they sound great. And I love the songs. Um, and I love that, especially the, the early stuff, because they were, they were just coming out. They hadn't done Sex on Fire and all that. They just done like the, the it sounded like they were, uh, it looked like they were in a pub, stuck on a small stage, uh, unable to move. 
Um, but they were on, they weren't, they were on a massive stage, very much able to move and they weren't doing anything, uh, kind of out there. And I found myself watching the screens more because that, that the editing on that's just a little bit more frantic and that keeps things going. And I bear in mind, I wasn't, I wasn't standing in golden circle. So I, I'm, I talk about my first concerts, but those, those two concerts are quite far apart, but that's where I started to realize like you could really make or break your live act by, by not being entertaining live. The camera can do so much. And we had grown up watching DVDs and, and videotapes and things like that of our favorite acts. I mean, we'd steal it off the television and, you know, press record and hold it in, wait for the ad breaks and pause it, you know, the old way. Uh, um, and we'd watch all these things thinking that this is what, you know, you look like. And that's why we were that entertaining and I still try to be as energetic as possible so that people will continuously watch you and not take their eyes off you. Not realizing that in actual fact, a lot of the time, dudes are kind of just standing still um and and jamming but the camera is making it look like everything's so frantic and arty that was the the thing that struck me the most that it's like oh um they're not actually losing their minds 24 7 as the as the show goes by yeah yeah and gareth have you any other concerts to add that may have made you uh yeah i got quite a few um so the first really really big show i went to i think it was it was either 2005 2006 um metallica came down to cape town it was my first sort of stadium concert experience and i was with you yeah you we were, were with together. me yeah yeah yeah, yeah, we were together. Right. yeah um and it was it was just it was super fun it was and it was a band that i'd grown up you know hearing was that on. your first gig that was my first real big concert that i'd been to yeah i, I mean i'd been to, to, yeah. to smaller local things and stuff like that but it was the first you know touring band uh from another country uh and it was yeah it was amazing it was it was a fantastic experience it it you know it it was kind of like where the bug bits and i was kind of like yeah i want to go to go i want to go to more concerts now um do you remember in in for whom the bell tolls when when james yes. puts his hand out and all the lights go out yes i remember yeah, i remember I, the I, whole band standing together our band standing together watching that moment and then the lights go off the whole crowd screams and then the lights go back on for the for the this final course in it I, I remember crying it was insanely great <laughs> full-on yeah, emotion it was, it was really, really good. good um now, I think since I mean, I've been to, to quite a lot of shows, particularly now that uh, you know living in London, because uh, it's just a bit more accessible. Um, I think rub it in, why don't pr- pretty, you? Yeah, sorry, man. <laughs> sorry, man. sorry. Um, but pretty, pretty memorable ones. Uh, yeah, the, the used uh, in Camden back in 2009 uh, was just really, really high energy. Um, I remember my, well, we weren't married at that time. So my girlfriend at that time, we're not, we're not my wife. Um, we were standing, we got like really, a really good, a really good spot. Like we were about five or six rows from, from the front. Um, and before the used even came on, there was an opening act called we are the ocean who were really great as well, but they incited the first mosh pit of the night. And <laughs> like, I, I, I didn't, I didn't realize that two people could be lifted off their feet at once and just like swept across the, the crowd so we need to say yeah, we, we we lost our good spot right at the front of the stage but you know we got carried around a marsh pit and that was really fun i basically picked her up someone else picked me up and we went floating about um but yeah that was amazing um florence at the machine at the o2 was something else altogether um so the, just in terms of I, I i never realized that like you could put together a show that because every other show I've been to before that had you know lots of you know lots of colorful lighting, flashing lights, you know like really a, a you know, big visual display as well. I mean like you know I'd seen you two when they did the 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 three sixty tour. Mark, you also had that. So. I was there. Uh, yeah, yeah. I was with you. 
Yeah, so you know, they're through like that. So it's you know, lots of lights, big screens, and stuff like that. Whereas Florence and the Machine, they had this completely downtoned, almost just like yellow, orangey, like it looked a bit like a desert, the stage set. Um, and they only had about three colors in their lighting scheme. But yet it was still such a powerful and emotive concert. And the music was just like, it was just brilliant. Um, you know, speaking of, of you too, that, that show, that's arguably the biggest show I've ever seen in my yeah. life. The, the amount of production that went into that, it was massive and extremely entertaining. And the music, we, like we, we really knew every single song they did. And we still know every single yeah. song that they'll do. We, we can kind of pick out, well, you also, if you go online, like we were, we were crazy fans and we were trying to pick out like what the set list, they did this in Budapest, they did this in the States, they did, you know, they're probably going to do a variation of that. And I mean, he, when he did Miss Sarajevo, I, I was like, I, I have not heard this song, you know, since between the pop album and that. And th- those sort of moments really strike you. And it, it's a, it's like a moment of clarity almost inside all that chaos. And the only other time I felt something like that, and you're going to laugh at me now, and I've told this story many times before Gaz knows it, but I, I went into the UK before I became a pro full-time musician. I, I went to the UK for work. I was working with a, with a um, um, Norwegian-based company that worked out of London. Um, and my friends, they, I worked there for three months. So I was exploring about and doing my thing. And my friends had said, have you heard of Bring Me The Horizon? And I said, no, never heard of them before. Because what they were like pretty new on the scene and they're playing clubs and that sort of thing. Just before they had broken out. It was also before, um, uh, I forget the singer's name, but before he started singing melodically, he was just basically doing the screamer sort of uh, thing. Um, uh, Ollie, yeah. Ollie, Ollie yeah. Would, yeah. Yeah, and that, that wasn't really my scene um, at that time either. I mean, I, I I really liked like Bullet For My Valentine, so that balance between singing and, and growling and screaming. So that, that was really what I was into. And I couldn't get tickets to that. So they said, look, we're going to scalp tickets. We're going to go watch Bring Me The Horizon. So I said, yeah, okay, look, I've got the day off. Um, I'm going to actually head to Camden Market um, and I'm going to go get some you know, memorabilia and I'm going to get some stuff for stage, you know, because you can always get cool armbands and like nice jackets and that sort of thing. So I thought I'd stock up before I head back home for the, for the stage show. And I spent pretty much the whole day out there and I stopped off for a beer. Um, and I don't know what pub it was, but it, it was a pub pub. It was a, it was, there was no stage and there was a kid in the corner. I mean, he was a kid, he was 15 and he had big wiry red hair <laughs> and a guitar that looked like it was gigantic on him. I mean, he looked like a midget. He was like a hobbit, probably the best um, description of him. It was fantastic. And I was, I kept looking across thinking, this guy's playing with a backtrack. It's pretty interesting because I've never heard these backtracks before. It's slightly different versions. I wonder how long – I remember thinking, I wonder how long he spent in studio making these quite strange-sounding backtracks. Um, and every now and then I'd like look across and I'd see he, would, he was using a loop station. Um, and I, I'd never seen a loop station before. I mean, I think we had heard about Katie Tinstall doing – looping on a song but like that's that's all i'd ever seen or heard of and i during his first break and he played like six sets which is crazy i walked over to this guy and i and i, I said hello and i'm like you know he's like where are you from i'm like south africa and i'm like what are you doing and he says why well, I, I live um I, I live for the music now and i, I just travel everywhere and and I said, what are you doing? And he said, I'm looping. I'm making it up from scratch. And this is how it is. And I saw the pedal. It's a Boss RC30, which is a loop station I now have, thanks to this kid. And um, <clears throat> he says, his name's Ed. And I'm like, oh, yo, Ed, um, nice to meet you. Like, um, are you going to be here any longer? Where are you playing next? And he said, well, I'm, I don't know where I'm sleeping tonight, but like, uh, I'm, I'll probably sleep on the, on the, on the train uh, on my way to Brixton or wherever he's going. And um, I said, listen, man, let me make a phone call or two. Because the place has got like three men and a dog. That's like all that's in there 
and me drinking a beer. So I phoned all my friends and I said, look, I'm a bit nervous about the scalping situation because I don't really want my, if they catch you, you know, I'm a little bit of a pussy like that. I mean, I, I, I'm all about the rebel life on stage, but you know, when it comes down to the law and being kicked out of a country, I, I get a little bit antsy. So I said, uh, I phoned my friends, um, my friend Nina was the name. And I said to her, Nina, bring the gang around here. Rather, I've got something else that's pretty cool. You've got to see this kid. He's rad. Um, and so about 30 of them showed up. Um, and we partied to Ed Sheeran that night, the whole night. And um, I wrote it in my journal and everything. I, mean, I phoned my wife um, and I said to her, like, you're never going to get this, this kid. Yeah, he's incredible. I hope something good happens to him one day. And all my friends signed up on his, like, his clipboard. He had a clipboard. Oh, fuck's sake. So it was not even, it was like, he wasn't even, there's no social media event. I think Facebook may have been around. And he was taking down email addresses and phone numbers. And my 30-odd friends, joined his like original fan club. They they get to see free shows all the time. They get these like gift hampers and stuff like that. He's obviously mega famous and huge. So fast forward to see when he comes to South Africa, plays the stadium tour. It's from the, not multiplied, divide, the divide tour. And he starts talking on stage about how in 2010, when everything really started to change for him and he had just brought out the A-team, uh, and a whole bunch of South Africans um, gave him a whole bunch of work and got him playing at their house parties and things like that. <laughs> My entire family <laughs> and friends turn and look at me. They're like, holy shit, you weren't kidding. Like, so anyway, that's just one of my one of my favorite stories to tell. But the my point of all of that is that the comparison between watching you two in front of 60,000 people, you know, make things hover in the sky and Bono fly with a jacket on and things like that. It, it was as good as sitting like a foot away from little ginger boy playing his, his, his show in a pub. And that can, that, that, that it changed me. It changed me so much that I came home and I bought a loop pedal just so that I could give things a try. And then as COVID struck us, it influenced me so much so many years later, you know, nearly nine, ten, oh, actually a decade later, yeah, that I went and bought an, a Boss RC30 and I started preparing a live show because there were no gigs available for us to be able to put the band together. So I now have a looping show that I that I do and I play everywhere. Well, my agents put me all over the place. We played house parties, we played weddings, we played like corporate functions, we've done so many things all through this looping show. And that's one concert that was like not even a concert that changed my whole perspective on how you can make a show happen. And he's still doing that in front of like thousands of people at, at concerts now. Incredible. Yeah. Yeah. I was actually thinking you were going to say I came home and dyed my hair red. <laughs> 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 but um, it's a nice segue. We'll get onto your own gigs before we finish up. Out of all the gigs you guys have played, is there an experience that you relive in your mind as maybe the most perfect one you played? Wow. Uh, we have honestly we've definitely played more than a thousand shows in our life. There's no question. But the one that sticks out the most. Well, you know, playing playing Cape Town Stadium was was a people always think that that's going to be the one we're going to say when we open for Bon Jovi. But it's such a blur in my mind. The only reason I remember anything of it is because of the music video. We I, I brought a film crew along with because I just know what happens in those moments when it's just frantic and crazy and you just don't get to do and speak to anyone you need to press over and over and sound checks those things take a lifetime and then you just gotta you you heard it around everywhere and next thing you know you know you get your call times and and then you're stuck in a room and then it happens and the show's over before you know it so i made sure we brought a film crew with us to kind of capture all the moments and then we used that footage and made a music video out of it that's the only reason i remember anything 
of it, but I only remember what's been shown to me. Uh, it's honestly, I've drawn a blank. I can't, um, as far as the concept that like that went down as something in our memory. What's yours, guys? I mean, I, I have no idea. Now, it is a really, really difficult question because we have played a lot of shows. I think that, oh, one, one that sort of is sticking out a bit in my mind. I mean, don't, don't ask me what the set list was or you know, what we wore or anything like that. But <laughs> back, back in the day when, when Mark and I were in a band called 12th Avenue together, this was probably back, I think I was only about 18, so this is like 2006. Um, we did a New Year's Eve show at this place near where we lived called The Corner Bar, which doesn't exist anymore. And that memory is screaming back at me right now. Thank you yeah, for saying yeah. that. <laughs> and, and it was just it was just one of those like really incredible gigs. You know, it's it, it was a small room. You know, I think it's sort of you know the what Mark was saying with like you know the Ed Sheeran story. It's it's you know, you don't always have to be in the biggest of rooms to have you know the biggest amount of fun. Um and it was yeah, it was a small room with pretty horrible acoustics, but it it just had a great atmosphere. It was just a place where you know people came together and they really enjoyed the music. It was loud. It was in your face. And it, this, this new year's Eve show, I remember was just, it was just one of those absolutely wild shows. I'd, like, I'd never seen the place that full and it was just loads of fun. And I think we stayed at the venue until not about by six, choice, not by, not yeah. by choice. Like <laughs> I, yeah, we, 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 yeah, we, we, we were the band that, that sort of saw in the new year during our set. And so we ended somewhere around like 1 a.m. or something like that, you know, chatted to people, packed things up. And we only got out of there, I think, at about 6 a.m. the next morning. Our guitarist at the time had this like this this deep, dark fear of the sun coming up while he was still awake and, you know, had a bit of a panic attack when he heard birds in the in the trees uh, while we were sitting outside the venue. That you know, Left his guitar and amp behind. Yeah. I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> he left he just fell. He said, someone pack up my gear. I've got to get yeah. home. Like, like a fucking vampire. Like I've got to get home before the sun gets up. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> so weird. Yeah, no, I remember <laughs> but that. But there was being... nothing was planned, but everything planned out fantastically. Champagne was brought to us as well. Yes. Each Sh- band member yeah. got a bottle of champagne. Sh- and champagne just appeared on the stage. I mean, I, I, thankfully we weren't using my drum kit that night because I think that stage was just absolutely soaked in, in alcohol. It was ridiculous. Every but almost yeah. everyone got like semi naked. It was it was quite quite something because the champagne yeah. was was out and we were we were on it that night. I mean we we don't really drink and play. We we never really, we've always been like how, how do you say this? Like we've tried to be we, we never didn't party, but we we wouldn't drink while we played. We'd have a beer or two while we played, and then afterwards we'd be like, cool, the gear's safe, everything's packed away, crew's taking the stuff away, and now now we're gonna have a drink or ten, and then and then we're good. But we we went at it long before our set began um i think you guys did they, I, I i didn't i was always the responsible person in the band i don't know so much <laughs> I, I remember you I remember you having a bit more than you normally do and and the party <laughs> and when the champagne came out we all popped the champagne and it's like we all knew it was like a formula one grand prix ending we just started spraying <laughs> everybody in the crowd there was not a dry person in that crowd and then the clothes started coming off on most of the ladies and it was and we played on longer we were meant to stop and we, i think we played another hour of just covers and whatever yeah, whatever being, the it, was, it was a long set it was it was good fun but it was extremely awesome but at the same time like looking looking back at it you're like that place could maximum take about 180 people and there was about 500 people in it um <laughs> yeah it was they ridiculous. were they, if you wanted to leave you you were not going if you were in the front and you chose if you found your way in the front in front of the band that's where you were for the rest of the night you you weren't leaving and you know you'd have to climb over someone 
um, to get out. But it was it was monumental. And we didn't leave. In fact, when the gig was finally over and then we'd done our 20th encore or whatever it was, we couldn't leave the stage. That's why we were there for so late. We just ended up getting past shooters and drinks and whatever from the front. That was I've forgotten about that. Thank you for reminding me. That was quite a show. That was ridiculous. <laughs> I remember another one where we realized that um, you know, we 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 come up from like playing really bad places where I mean to call the person a sound man would be a um a promotion. I mean, you're talking about it. Yeah. You're talking no, I mean, about we, it. I mean, we got undressed in alleyways next to to dumpsters filled with 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 rubbish. You know, it's like it's it's the literal toilet circuit that we played. Yeah. We never <laughs> we never went on stage in what we were wearing. We we always got there and then changed and and put it like a, a gig outfit on. I still do that. I, I know you do as well. Um and I remember getting dressed in this alleyway in, in the center of Cape Town at a place called the Mercury and I mean, a, a, a street person walked up right next to me and peed right next to where I was standing. Um, had, had no thought or like worry about what, what was going on. I was in my socks. So I'm hopping away on one leg with you know one leg in the pant leg and, and the other one jumping to try and avoid the urine that's heading towards my left leg. <laughs> <laughs> so that sort of thing. But I, I remember we, we never really had good monitoring. We never had anything. We, we learned to lip sync, uh, lip sync, lip read. Um, of where we were a lot of the time. Um, and and we played this place. It wasn't New Year's, but it was close to it. And we, we went to some farm, outland farm area. And I'm sure you remember this, guys, where one of the fans was so keen to get close to us that he he was lifted up, hoisted up, and there was a a, a wooden, uh, what do we call it, like a, a um, beam in the roof that he hung onto. And, you know, Tom Cruise, Mission Impossible style, all the way through to the front of the show over everyone's heads. And then stole the monitor, the one yes. and only monitor we had. Do you remember that? I remember this. I remember that there was a wedge monitor being passed around the audience. That's right. You know, like, you, know, you, get, you get beach balls at festivals where you know, people were tossed around the audience. Well, this was a wedge yeah. monitor. Yeah. Yeah, the monitor was, was giving passed back. And do you know, when I saw the sound guy walking towards the action, I thought, oh, he's going to kill someone because they've, they've obviously <laughs> taken his gear. And he joined in and threw it across the edge of the room. Do you remember that? It was, in, it was insane. At that moment in time, I'm looking around and I, and I realized like, shit, I can't hear anything. I'm just hearing noise at this point in time. But I'm looking at the band and the crowd is going for it. And I'm like, well, we, we got this. We, we're okay. We, we obviously don't need monitors. And it, that, that way of growing up in the, in the music business really helped because people think you get to a certain level and your in-ear monitors are going to be fantastic and your, your monitor guy knows what he's doing or whatever. They, no one knows what they're doing. We still don't know what the hell we're doing. It's like as long as you can like find the groove, you're okay. You just have to pick and wing it. And um, yeah, I, I love watching new acts come in because I've been doing this a while now. So have you love watching new acts come in and they're like, yeah, we're on the big festival stage. It's going to be amazing. And then the, the sound is awful. And you could see that. Yeah, you could see that disappointment sink over. I, and just like, oh, it, what it, have I done with my life? <laughs> it was, it was actually, sorry, really quick. It was actually a really funny thing a few nights back. So I, I, I did a show where there were about five or six different acts on the ball. So it was really we had two really short sets. So everyone was sort of got about twenty minutes sets. Um, and me being an acoustic act, they asked me if I would open the nights, you know, so they could kind of build up to the bands that were on stage. And I said, yeah, sure, all good. So you know, I got there. I was supposed to go on at about seven o'clock. So I got there at about 6 15, you know, because I could know I could do a setup, do a quick little line check and and you know go on. And I do that. And it takes all of about four or five minutes because it's you know, it's literally just guitar and vocals. And like Mark said, you know, I'm so used to where the sound is terrible that I, I just I don't care anymore. I'm kind of just like, I can kind of hear myself, it's good enough for 20 minutes, I'll be fine. 
but the sound was actually incredible. Like it was a it was a fantastic sound engineer, and like it sounded immaculate, and you know I had a great show. But during this the, the time, you know, I I get done with my sound check, and someone else shows up, one of the other acts, and they're like, "Oh, I've got a few backtracks on a on a laptop. Can we quickly check those?" And the sound guy, being such a wonderful person, he was just like, "A quick, I'll, I'll quickly squeeze you in." And honestly, I think their sound check was probably about 25 minutes. So it was longer than what their actual <laughs> set was. And then another band came on and they had all their own amps and in-ear monitor system. And so all this stuff. And I'm like, you guys are playing for 20 minutes. Like you don't need all this. And yeah. they went and, and they were just sound check after sound check after sound check. And like people being really particular as well. Like some guy was like, oh, my solo patch on my guitar is a bit muddy and not quite loud enough. Can you fix it for me, Mr. Sound Guy? And I thought, like, this is not <laughs> this is not Mr. Sound Guy's problem. This is your problem, friend. But yeah. Yeah. Know, uh, it is it, crazy. It was really, really funny. But you know, it was a good night and everybody was really cool. So I mean, yeah, but it was just really pretty funny to see that. I thought, like, wow, you know, clearly some people have not grown up with, you know, playing dumpsters. <laughs> yeah, school of hard knocks, man. I think it makes yeah. you a bit of muse at the end of the day. You just got to work it out. So like we to go go back to the album now and the new single that that's come out now you know that's that might be why the song is like it is it's just he he writes a thing and I almost immediately understand what it is he's trying to say where he's going with it because we've got this, these experiences that we've drawn on um, and concerts that we've been to and influences that we've had and you know mixed experiences and ultimately it's it's happy all of it's happy so like when it comes down to writing the songs it, it, all that kind of pours through and that you were talking right in the beginning of the interview asking about like there's a familiarity to everything and i think that might be the familiarity of it is that it's comfortable that we now know enough about what's going on warts and all uh, that that the music just speaks for itself you know so it's there definitely definitely and before we get into the last couple of questions then what are your future plans how are you going to tour the album mark can we expect to see you pop up in england some stage I have not said this out loud uh, to anyone besides Gaz and the family, but yes, I do think that that is a distinct possibility. Um, not right away, not this year, um, but as twenty twenty four comes along, um, I I am really hoping to get to get out there. Um, on one hand, for for the work, but on the other hand, to see my family um, and to be with my brother for a little bit, you know, because. Uh, you spend that much time with a person and then all of a sudden they're not there anymore. That, that, uh, that, that is a bit tough. And I think we realized that when, when you came home uh, and not realizing it had been six years, it was kind of like a holy crap. Like there was a, a lot of um, greatness to it. Like as in, it almost felt like you hadn't left, but then there were, there were lots of moments where we felt like shit, you haven't been here and I haven't mm. been there and, and that's what's gone on. So um, yeah, I, I've, got a lot of um got a lot of work that i've got to finish here in south africa but we do we we do want to make sure my team here wants to make sure that i can do some work out there as well um and because gas is there it makes so much more sense to be able to to work stuff together and we we can do we can work together we don't have to work together but ultimately we will we will probably do that song when i'm around um but he's going to do the song regardless of it um are you planning on coming here at all I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd love to. Um, yeah. I'd, 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 ideally, you know, June, July here in South Africa is morbid, especially in Cape Town because where I'm, where I live, because uh, when rain hits, it's almost as if 
we have gremlins here, you know, and no one's allowed to get wet and no one wants to go yeah. to gigs. So it becomes, uh, <laughs> right. becomes extremely hard to put shows on. And I'm, I'm doing okay. And we're all, we're, we're, the industry handles fairly well. And, and normally I, I would then, you know, go to drier places like Johannesburg, but now it's snowing in Johannesburg. So uh, they, they've adapted the, into the same sort of routine. So the idea is to rather just go bigger. And with the, with the, the fact that it's an international release for the first time, and my last single did quite well internationally. So I, I, I'd like to I'd like to start traveling outside of SA a little bit more. I, I figure I'd start with the UK and then and then everything's really close in comparison to the way it is to travel here. It's hard to travel here, whereas it's it's much much simpler to travel there. I could move across to places in Europe and uh, and throughout the UK and, and that sort of thing as well. So yeah, we we are working on it. It I don't want to say it because it, then people are going to start asking. But I, I'll, I suppose I'll, we're we're hoping June and July. Um, is the time we come out. Um, so about a year from now. That's great. I mean, it's summertime here, you know, I think I, I had a bit of a slower start to this year gig-wise, but as soon as the summer hits, I've just been busy every single weekend and it's been awesome. Yeah, I think my focus is really just, you know, keep on just trying to make it more of a name for myself here, London and surrounding areas, and then, you know, hopefully just try and expand from there as as, as things go. Yeah. And, you know, I have to say, next june july don't forget ireland is literally like a, an hour and a half ferry ride away so cough, cough, <laughs> I, I, desperately, <laughs> I desperately want to come and visit but i need a place to stay so i'm coming I'm knocking on your door dude no worries no worries i can uh, <laughs> rustle up something for you <laughs> cool. i said i need a couch and i'm good perfect perfect right we'll uh dive into the last uh three or four questions so if you guys could see any performer from history in concert for one night only, who would it be? Queen. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. it. Queen with Freddie. Yeah. <laughs> that has always, has always been my answer. I mean, they're, they're still phenomenal with, um, with Adam Lambert. Um, they've lost nothing of it, but, um, I just, it's more so to see Freddie. I mean, I, I, I would, I mean, I saw Steven Tyler for the first time ever and probably the last time ever. And I don't think I'll ever see him again in my lifetime. And it was, it, it you know, when, when people talk about the bucket list and you tick it off, I've never had any sort of bucket list or anything like that. But when I saw Steven Tyler, I immediately regretted not being able to have seen Freddie in my life. It, it was, it was that chain reaction of like, shit, I was just seeing one of the greatest performers, frontmen of all time. And I, I could, I can never see the greatest front man of all time. So that that would that would be a, a huge one for me. That or I don't know, 1960s Beatles. It's hard to say. But the screaming crowds, I don't know. I mean, screaming crowds are one thing. At least with, with Queen, they had PA systems that worked. So I was just going yeah. to say if you could give the Beatles today's technology, but have the Thank 60s God. Beatles. Oh yeah, that would be pretty good. Amazing. I'd enjoy that. The next one. If you guys, if the whole music thing never happened like you weren't interested in music what do you think you'd be doing now wow um wow hmm. i've never given that any thought really at all. not even a bit it's been so much a part of our lives my life and your life but but and then together our lives that it's just never really you know People talk about like follow the dream and the, I can honestly tell those, if there's any young listeners, this thing, you know, if you're trying to do this to be famous, don't, just don't, don't do it for that reason. Cause it's a stupid reason to, to do anything, you know, famous fleeting, it comes and it goes and it's just like drugs. You just want to get into it because it makes you feel good, but it only makes you feel good for a little while until it starts biting you back. But the, the dream was always to be able to do this for a living. And it took me 
a long time. It's taken us ages to get to get to that point. And now I've, I've been doing it for a long time as well. So now this is uh, for money, you know. Um, so I just, I'd never seen anything else in the process of it. I Even when I, I mean, I had a pretty, you remember, guys, I had a pretty good corporate job once upon a time where I was a, I was a managing director of a software firm. I was in charge of the whole African and Middle Eastern division Holy once crap. upon a time. Yeah. Um, and at no point did I ever think this is where I'm going to stop and end up and and go into it. it we, we would take leave. We, we, we all did this. We would take leave. We'd get our annual leave from work. And we would use that leave, the whole band would coordinate and put it together at the same time so we could go on tour. Uh, it was the most ridiculous thing. You'd come back, you'd be more exhausted than you were before you left for the tour. <laughs> yeah. Your boss would be looking at you going like, what's the matter with you? You just had like a month's leave. And you'd go, yeah, man, but I went on tour and I played all over yeah. the country. And, <laughs> and I'm, I'm, I'm really, really tired. You think I could take another day's leave, you know, just to sleep? Um, because it was, And they'd look at you like you're completely mental. And we were, we were, that is really mental to do that, but I never gave up on it. And I, even to the point where, I mean, our manager had given us real grief. He had stolen so much money from us and 12th Avenue was in a, in a real bind and we had nothing. We, we you know, we, we were trying to work it to the point where uh, we'd have enough capital outlay and money put aside because we kept none of the money for ourselves. We always put it back into the business thinking that we would eventually be able to leave our jobs because we kept menial jobs for such a long time that we would have the ability to move across to something decent and then buy a place together or rent a place together and then a tour bus and, and kind of, you know, the, the American dream sort of like where we're doing music. Um, and that's why I say the dream has never really come out like the dream. And by the time I had gone to enter Idols, we, we were in such a bad state that no one was keen on working with us because they were, A, they were either worried that we knew what that manager had been doing in terms of embezzling and messing around with everyone else or B, they were just going like, well, we don't know if this band's worth their, their salt because this guy that, that managing them had obviously worked his way to get them into certain festivals and onto certain stages. So we don't know if we've been we've been bamboozled. So we were just kind of being put by the wayside just because people weren't sure of what to do. And I think the final straw was um, a family member turning around, never Gaz and never my wife, but um, turning around and saying like, it could, might be time to hang it up now and start being a grown-up and um, and looking for a real job. And it was probably the first time in my life that I'd stopped eating, uh, put down my knife and fork and and left the table without a word to say. And it, it, we've all heard me talk. I, I It takes a lot for me to shut up. And I shut up and I and I left the table. And that was the end of that conversation. Um, and I was even more determined that something would come of it. Um, and Gaz was always there to say, don't worry, it, it's just a hiccup. It's going to come. And my wife was always there to say, it's going to come. And then the, we took a trip to the United States um, and I went to meet with a few record labels while I was out there, which sadly didn't work out. But in the process, I took part in the American Idol experience at Disney World um, and won and got a golden ticket to go in. When I couldn't go back to the States, finances weren't right for that and I needed to get another visa and I just couldn't do that. So I, I turned it down, but I walked into the South African version of the audition with so much more confidence knowing that like, it doesn't matter anymore. Like someone's going to see me and it's going to work out. And that, and I mean, I came second place after all of it with the support of, of Gaz and the rest of the band and my family, but it's, it's just never occurred to me. What could I do? What would I do? I mean, I nearly lost the business. How many years ago was that guys? You remember about six years ago? Seven? Yeah. Um, 2000 and, 14, somewhere around about there, the business took a real bad turn. Bad management again, um, bad publisher again, um, and just you know people not 
getting payments done and just not running things the way it should be running. Um, and I ha- happened to have gotten a really big royalty payment out and that sorted everything out for me. And uh, um, But I remember the day before getting the royalty payment saying to my wife, like, it might be time to look for um, a real job again, a normal job, a day job. Um, and she used my, she said, you, you used to say that this is going to kill me if I don't make it into the, into the industry. And I said, yeah, but it's, it's different when you have, um, a kid and it's different when you, when you have like responsibilities that, you know, the, the rent's got, what does Tenacious D say? The, the legend of the rent must be paid, you know? Um, and, and I, I had accepted that. And I don't know if that was maybe the, the lesson I needed to learn because as I made that lesson and I was ready to make that sacrifice, the royalty check came in and I was immediately out of debt um, and ready to start again. So, yeah, I just, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I have no idea what I would do. I know that it would, I would never stop playing music. So it's hard. Um, it just, it fell upon me. And I, I feel like it's a, the same with you, bro. Like you, you, you it, it wasn't like forced upon us, but it was just there we naturally yeah. gravitated towards it no matter what we do. Even now, you moving to the UK, thinking like, oh, I don't know if I'll ever play in a band again. I don't know what I'll ever do. Um, drum set stayed behind here, you know, things like that. And But yet here you are uh, releasing your first single off your new album. I mean, that's pretty, it just happens to us. It's hard to, to think anything other than that. Yeah, you can't really escape it. Yeah. What's the short answer? Racing driver. No. <laughs> oh man, I wish. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, short answer. I think. I think if it was like a world where music didn't exist, and you know, I had. Yeah. You know, what was that film uh, yesterday where the guy gets an accident and the Beatles don't exist? You know, same. If it was that kind of scenario, I remember being a, a teenager, being into skateboarding and being really terrible at it, but also being into photography. So I think like an action sports photographer would be my alternate universe kind of thing right. that's quite cool um, yeah yeah but not, not, they're very unlikely with in a world where there actually is music <laughs> right, right. yeah and i have an odd one for you for you now if you had to spend 24 hours locked inside a room with any musician from history who would it be wow who would it be maybe mccartney right Right. Yeah. I think Paul. I think he'd be the one I'd wanna wanna spend some time with. John would be a little weirded out. George's not really a fan of Ringo. We just laugh too much, I think. But mm-hmm. like Paul, <laughs> I think I could handle Paul for twenty four hours straight. I don't know mm-hmm. if he could handle me, but I, I could handle him. <laughs> yeah, he seems like the one that you'd kinda you know, you get on well with most. You know, as you said, John would be I'd imagine difficult. Ringo, you just couldn't take him seriously. And George, I think, would be a bit boring at times. Yeah. Yeah. George just would stop talking and shuts down. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> That's the impression I got. It would be him or maybe Clapton would be cool as well. Who would you hang out with, guys? I, I'm really trying to think of of, of who. Um, I think, you know, you know who I think could be kind of interesting uh to, to spend to spend a day with is um uh josh fries he's an incredible session drummer uh he's playing for the foo fighters at the moment uh, and he's played for, for he's played for sting and for like all sorts of amazing artists um, he's the most played uh, most most used session drummer yeah, in the world like yeah. he's played yeah, for he everybody holds- um so yeah i think i think he's probably got a lot of interesting stories and and you know, based on I've I follow him on Instagram, based on his Instagram account, like he's quite a fun person as well. And I think we'd have a lot of laughs. Yeah. 
Yeah, you guys would. We, we, we wouldn't. I, I don't think I'd be able to <laughs> handle too much drum talk for one day. It's enough. You know? I'll, I'll give it twenty minutes. Twenty minutes, and then I'm taking a nap. Like that's what's happening. <laughs> <laughs> and the final one. So, what song would appear on the soundtrack to your life? Oh, uh, for me, it's the show must go on. Um, it's always been my go-to. When I feel happy, I play it. When I feel sad, I play it. When I feel I need to be driven, when I feel I need to be pushed through something, that's the song I go to. Always, it's been my favorite song since I was five. Sounds like a suit you down to the ground as well. Yeah, right. Yeah, I want to. I'm. Uh, I was. I'm, um, I've gone back and forth in it, but I'm probably going to still do it as tattoo the lyrics onto my arm. Um, yeah, and some sort of design. It's been a been a go to. It's really, it, you know, I, it was one of the reasons. I remember we had this conversation when we were kids, like about becoming songwriters, writing our own stuff, which was unheard of when we were kids. Like I said, our country was always crazy about the the cover scene and the performance angle. And you know, I, I can't remember what it was. Or what, it might have been that song, in fact. But I, I remember turning around and hearing something I wanted to hear in it and then hearing something else on a different day and then and needing up off to play a hockey match or something like that and I needed some inspiration and I I had a Walkman back then and I turned on the Walkman and Show Must Go On was the first song to come on and I, I just remember thinking like wow it's got so many levels to it um when I need to be motivated when I need to just be somber when I need to focus when I you know just to be happy about that I followed through things like that and I remember thinking somebody wrote that you know, uh, and like, what must it be like to write something and know how much you've helped just me? But I know that there are probably millions of others out there who feel the same way about that song and other songs, obviously. And that was the, that might've been, I'm sure it was that song that was the turning point where I said, I wonder what it would be like to write something that, that could help other people uh, and make a difference. And I remember talking to you about it, guys. I remember yeah. we shared a, we shared a room back then. So I know, I know that I would have said that to you. Um, whether you got it or not, because you may have still been an infant, but we we did. <laughs> yeah. What's your go-to song? Um, I think on a soundtrack for my life, uh, I'd say Champagne Supernova from Oasis. Right. That is true. Right. You have yeah. always played that, yeah. It, it's, been yeah it's one of my favorites. I don't have yeah. a favorite song, but I think uh, that one sprung to mind. No, it was something that you know, means a lot to me. It is such a it, it describes you quite a lot, you know what I mean? Because obviously they they singing from the perspective where were you while we were getting high, but you you never get high, so it's, it's almost like the the introvert looking through the mirror, as in like you know <laughs> where were you? I was I was getting on with my life while you <laughs> while you were getting high. <laughs> brilliant, brilliant. Well, listen, guys, I actually I can't describe how much I've enjoyed this. Now it has been one of the funnest episodes I've done. Ah, sweet. Yeah, it's always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us.
Hey guys, I really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please rate and review us on iTunes and Spotify. And if you're interested in signing up the Band Builder Academy, use the link in the show notes below and enter the code CONCERTS and you'll receive 10% off. So, until next time, keep rocking. Hey, hey, what are you guys still doing here? The show is over. It's over. You can go home. Go on. We'll see you next time. We'll be here. Bye.